0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm your host today, Al Warren. Joining me is Mike Brown.
1: Hello. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's good that you're sounding good today. You've been in such a bad mood this last, I don't oh. know. What's yeah. wrong with you, you know? I'm
1: feeling a little more chipper.
0: Chipper. Chipper. That's a squirrel. Yeah. <laughs> um, So now today, actually on the phone, we got him here now so we can just tease him live. Um, we've got an author called Frank W. Butterfield. Thank you for being here.
1: Well, thank you. Real pleasure to be here. Be with you guys. We'll see if you say that in an hour. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, you you have um you are a big time writer. You write a lot of books. So um wow, have you been writing all your life? Is this something you've done since a little little kid or is it something that came on later?
1: Uh well, I I did write my first mystery when I was uh 9 years old. It was about a three-page thing and when I showed it to my mother and grandmother, my grandmother pointed out that somehow or another she was the victim and she wasn't very pleased with that. So I didn't write anything else until I was in my thirties. Um, and then i tried to write a, a, a mystery and kind of got bogged down, uh, in a couple of things and then just forgot about it. I picked it up when I was 49 and which was, um, it'll be five years ago this May. Um, And had been writing kind of uh, slash fic, if you know what that is, and realized that I could write. I was just writing for fun. And so I sat down one day and was like, okay, I want to write an actual book that I can publish. I already knew how to do self-publishing because I'd done that on on a nonfiction basis. But I wanted to, like, see if I could publish or write a novel that people would read and Apparently so. So that's where my first novel came from, The Unexpected Heiress, and that came out on June first of twenty sixteen.
0: So when that happened, so when you when you were writing that, decided you want to you're going to write something, have someone publish it. Um, but what was the thing that gave you the confidence to actually send it to a publisher or to? just do that when did like like it takes a lot of confidence because myself writing even I find that uh, you can write and then you look over it and you kind of go well I need to change this need to add that or I don't like this so there's always this thing going on in your head there must be a time when all of a sudden you go yeah this is good I can do
1: this yeah and it wasn't it wasn't just one moment but there were two or three things that happened. The first of which was that I actually wrote something and finished it, which for me is a big deal. Um, the second thing was that I realized because I was going the self-publishing route, I, I'm just I don't play well with others, so I cannot imagine having a publisher. I just can't imagine what it would do to them. Um, so I, I knew I was going to self-publish, and I knew that if I was going to do this, that I was going to make mistakes. And that that was going to have to be okay and that I was going to have to be okay with failing and with people not liking what I was writing. And once I got okay with that, then everything just kind of clicked into place. I also had a friend who had already published um, a novel and I ran it by him and he read it. He loved it. And I was, that shocked me because I kind of figured he'd, he'd be a little dismissive. And that was probably, if there was one moment, it was probably that. But I was already kind of on a roll by then. And I just, and I knew that the bottom line is still the bottom line, particularly when reviews come in, that if I'm not writing what I want to read and I'm not writing what I would like to write, the, uh, there's no reason to do it because it's too much of an invo- emotional investment if I'm going to be worried about what other people think about it. Even though I did kind of finally get off. Of, my like, okay, can I do this or not do this once somebody told me I could. But I realized the only way to keep going would be just to realize if I fail, I fail. If people don't like it, they don't like it, and that's okay, because I'm just gonna keep writing the stories I want to read and the stories I want to be involved in. And that's what I've done.
0: Okay. So so listen, um you have to tell me the truth here because when did you get so uh so uh mentally stable? <laughs> <laughs> I mean because this is a that's a big thing um for all of us because because nowadays social media is such a big part of everyone's life in North America and a lot of the world so where did you get that confidence and that well if you don't like it too bad like it's that howard sternish well here's what it is you don't like it turn your channel or whatever how can you be so comfortable with that, like, because I, I, I'm still not that now, and uh, I don't know how many books I've got out, 16, 18. I, can't, I still don't feel that confidence to, to uh, say where reviews don't matter or what other authors say or what people say. I go, I go up and down like a toilet seat.
1: Well, so do I. Uh, it, 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 lest it sound like I'm just this 100% absolutely committed to kind of person, I'm not. But one thing I have learned, and I've learned it from my mom, I've learned it from other people in my life, is, is basically, the, for lack of a better way of putting it, the power of willingness, particularly the willingness to fail. If you're willing to fail, then all of a sudden all this stuff doesn't matter anymore. If you know, like, okay, well, this could absolutely crash and burn, but I'm going to do it anyway because I like what I'm doing, then all that other stuff, it, it doesn't go away, but it fades away. Now, I will tell you, I, I mean, I, I do have some little mental tricks. Like when I when I read a bad review, if it's an intelligent bad review, because there are unintelligent ones, uh, and it really hits me hard, I'll sit with it and just let it burn. That's one of the most powerful things I've ever learned, and that's something I learned, again, from my mom, to just sit there and let something burn through you. And instead of trying to, like, drag it through a day or two or three or four and deal with it, slowly over time, just go ahead and sit down and feel awful about it. And that it's amazing what that can do. Hmm. But it really just, to me comes down to if I'm willing to fail, then I can pretty much do anything I want to do. And I really am doing what I want to do. So, you know, I, I, um, I could say I'm lucky, but I would really say that it's just that I have, I've had some really amazing people in my life that I've known over, over the years. um, who have helped me discover these things. I wish I could say I came up with them on my own, but I didn't. Mm. But, so, you know,
0: I was going to say, so it's kind of like ownership, ownership for what you do. Yeah. Like this is who you are. This is what I do. This is how I do it. And uh, you own it. Some might do well. Some might not.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Wow. It's a good place to be in. Um, so, so now you write, all it's all crime fiction is it or how would you describe your writing
1: well i would say the majority of it is uh crime fiction uh most of it is historical although i do have um because i have three series that are that are in running they're all in the same universe but they're all set in different times and places um two of them are well one of them is crime mystery adventure thriller kind of stuff that's my main series the other one is more of legal procedural, and then the third is more—it's romance with all sorts of things thrown in. It's just like a, a series that I write because I want to—I want to play with all sorts of ideas. And um, so the first series, the one that's mostly crime, is uh, well—it's now called the Adventures of Nick and Carter. The first one was the Nick Williams mystery series, and that was a series of thirty-two novels which I wrapped up in 2019. Um, and that's the one I started with. The Unexpected Heiress is the first title in that series. They, that, it starts in 53 and ends in 67. And now, um, the ongoing series, which I wanted to broaden out a little bit, not just always make it about, uh, crime mystery is called the adventures of Nick and Carter. And that starts in 1970. And we'll go through, um, their deaths, which will be 2008, which everybody knows that I'm not giving anything away there. <laughs> um, but my legal procedural is set, I live in Daytona Beach in Florida, and my legal procedural is set here in, that, in the 40s. And I like to call it Perry Mason at the Beach with a twist. <laughs> because it's like Perry Mason and, and uh, his private detective are lovers. That's essentially what it is and they're dealing but they're not dealing with California stuff they're dealing with Florida stuff and in the 40s Florida stuff was is great for plots there's just so many things that can happen here um so that's and those are my two that are focused on that are mysteries so even in the legal procedural there's still a mystery and they're still solving you know they have basically end up solving crimes like Perry Mason did it just not as directly as a private detective or as a sleuth, but rather in the legal process so
0: um so when you're doing the the period pieces like they're so they're 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 set in different times um, are are the time periods really part of are they actually a character in themselves
1: uh, y- yes absolutely they, and they they And what's interesting is now having written a series that's basically almost 20 years in length, things change. There's a huge difference from, you know, 1953 to 1967 in American culture. Huge, huge difference. Um, Because the early 50s is more like the 40s and the late 60s is more like the 70s, you know, on and on and on like that. But. And also they're getting older, the characters. And so they're dealing with things that happen as they age and they become more mature and they, you know, become less like this and more like that. So, yeah, well, time is really would be the character, not so much the time period, but time itself and the passage of time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say because it, that, now that must be the the what do you say the the hardest or the most timely part of your research because you have to get the 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 things correct in a certain time period
1: yes and i have made some wowser kind of mistakes (laughs) some serious mistakes um but thanks to the miracle of electronic publishing most of those have been corrected um but, yeah, no, that is the way I do it now is when I'm starting a new story, uh, the first place I go is the newspaper. And then I'll, I'll read the newspaper like the few days before the story is going to start um, from, you know, that time from whenever that was. And then I'll sometimes read Life magazine, which for up until the 70s is a really great way of getting some insight into the culture. Then sometimes I'll go read Time Magazine and National Geographic, just different things like that um, to get a clue of kind of what's going on outside, you know, the personal lives of the people that I'm writing about. Um, that's really helpful. But it gets me stationed to that time period. And, you, you know, when I write books back to back to back, which some of those in the first series are back to back, uh, it, you know, I just have to get established in one particular moment, and then that takes care of itself and run with that. Um, but yeah, that's a big part of the research, and also researching locations and um, making sure I'm getting people placed in the right time, in the right place, in the right way. Because some buildings that exist now did not exist 50 years ago, 70 years ago, and uh, that's the big first mistake I made. There's a Grace Cathedral, which is the Episcopal uh, Church Cathedral in San Francisco, in 1953 was not finished. And if you went there now, you would not think that. It looks like it was built in, you know, the early 1900s and just the way that it is. But they stopped building on it when the Depression and didn't start back up until the early 60s, something I didn't know. So I have a description, the first version of the first book, there's a funeral that takes place there, and I have a description where they're entering in a door that didn't exist so when I went back and updated that edition I just moved things around a little bit and um, made sure that it was clear that it doesn't look the way that it does now
0: so in your story is your is your story the most important thing or are you really concerned with the the, the grammar you might say or, or the um, the wordings
1: well this you know well it's interesting because um, Uh, One of my best readers is somebody I went to high school with, and we were in all the same uh, English grammar and literature classes together. So every now and then I'll be doing something, I'll send him a note, and I'm like, you know, Mrs. Kilgore, she was our teacher in the 11th grade. um, I'm like, Mrs. Kilgore is rolling in her grave. If she has any idea what I'm doing with this grammar, she's going to, you know, rise up and, like, haunt me. Um, because the grammar, the wording, it's important, but it's important to set the mood and the tone of what's going on in the story. It services that. So the story is more important. Um, I've even had readers because the main character who's the primary narrator in the first series, Nick Williams, he had a privileged background. He grew up on Knob Hill. He went to a, a private school both for grammar school and high school and should be, and actually was well-educated to a point. Uh, And so I've had people actually write me and be like, when is Nick going to start talking like he's from Nob Hill? And I'm like, never, because it's part of his personality to talk like he's not from there because he spent a lot of his adult life trying to not be from there. So that, you know, that kind of thing, that setting and tone, it's not, you know, like the elements like weather and grammar and how people speak and how... The paragraphs even are structured, in my opinion, really speeds the plow to help you kind of get a sense of where you are when you're reading what you're reading. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like, I have books where I have really long paragraphs. And that my Daytona Beach books, depending on, because I have five different POVs in that story, but different depending on who's doing it, there will be really long paragraphs. But in the Nick stuff, they're always really short because he doesn't think, he thinks in really staccato kind of ways. He kind of moves very quickly from one idea to another. Whereas I have like a kind of a dreamier character in his inner monologue uh, in this Daytona series. He thinks and thinks and thinks about stuff. And so the paragraphs get really long um, because that he's just kind of off in his own little world, thinking about what he's looking at that sort of thing. So all of that, that structure and the grammar and, the tone services the story and reinforces who the characters are and what they're doing. That's the way I see it.
0: So, so your character, when you talk about your characters and first of all, let's go to Nick. So is Nick you or. No. (laughs) No. Well, where does Nick come from then? And who is Nick? Like how do do you create that?
1: Well, he kind of came sweet, generous. He kind of came fully formed like Athena out of the the head of Zeus, (laughs) (laughs) Um, he just came fully formed. I did have a little bit of trouble at first blending him with Lord Peter because I am a huge Dorothy Sayers fan. She's my favorite, favorite, favorite author, period. So at first I I kept, in fact, in the first book, there are these periods where kind of Nick goes over into kind of almost sounding like an aristocrat. Well, not an aristocrat, an aristocrat. (laughs) Um, and eventually, It just came to me that it was really clear that his boyfriend, husband, would eventually turn to him and be like, you know, you need to cut that out. And so there's, this, there's now kind of a thing that goes back and forth between the two of them because he, it, it became obvious to me that I wasn't putting that in there. That's actually the way Nick talks is that when he needs to, he can sound like he's from Nob Hill. He can sound like he's, high, you know, well – well-bred and well-raised, all that sort of thing, and can sound very pretentious, which has its effect. And so when he does it in a place and a time when it's not necessary, Carter, who's his husband, will kind of elbow him and say, like, cut out the high hat voice, like, stop, stop talking like that. Which, you know, is one of those little things that happens between couples that I always find so wonderful to talk about in books like this.
0: Well, that's interesting. So how do you feel about your characters? I I, I ask this question because a lot of the um, fiction authors we've interviewed over the times, um, quite often they'll say they're they're like their children. They're like their own sort of entity. Is that sort of how it is with you, or is it Um, different? No,
1: that's definitely the the case. And there's some of them that I don't like. Um, There's a running character in the first series, in the Nick Williams series that he just, he cannot figure out where to land. He cannot, he's, he's, he's gay and then he's straight and then he gets married. And then he has a kid and then he comes back out of the closet and then he goes back into the closet and like, and it, it really has to do with, he likes to make money. And so he kind of goes where the prevailing winds go. And, um, I re- I really don't like him. Um, And there are others I'm kind of like, uh, okay. And there are others that I write about, and I'm like, if I met this, I like writing about this person, but if I met them in real life, I would not like them at all. Um,
0: But how is that to write? How is that to write someone like a character, um, a main character, especially um, that you really don't like and you don't like their behavior and what they do? Uh, What's that like writing
1: that? Well, it, you know, it, with the main characters, because I'd say in my books there are probably uh, there are nine main characters, pretty much. Because there's there are two narrate, or there's two main characters in two of the series, and then five in one of the series. There's some that I feel closer to, and some that I feel more distant from, and some that I really like looking at like someone across the table, I like watching them and, and observing them. And some of them I want to get into their heads and figure out what the motivations are. Um The interesting thing is that I kind of addressed this because the, I have a contemporary series and the narrator is essentially me. I decided to write, cause it's just fun to do. I decided to write a book where I would be the main character. And so I kind of figured out all the dynamics of that. And I realized that back in 1990 or 91 uh that the me his name is in the in the book would have met carter in 91 at this one particular bar in san francisco that i did go to particularly in the spring and summer of 91 and um that and i could even see like when that would have been and what would have been happening in that bar And it was one of those things where I could see that I would be sitting at one end of the bar and he would be back at the other end. It'd be the center of attention. I'd be looking at him thinking, I really wish I was your friend and I could get to know you. But also at the same time feeling like, but there's no way that would ever happen because of who you are and what you represent and all that stuff. And that I I actually talk about that in one of the books where that actually happens as an event. And I got to explore that of like, well, this is what it would be like to meet one of your own characters. Some of them you would like and some of them you wouldn't really like, but they're interesting. And they're fascinating to be around. It's interesting to get in their heads, but you don't necessarily want to spend time with them.
0: Where do you think they come from then?
1: (laughs) The ethers. I don't, you know, they're, to me, they're just as real as anyone else, except for the part where they're not in my, proximity. So, you know, that's Hmm. not a good way to say that, but there's, I mean, I could say it metaphysically and I have a very specific metaphysical way of looking at this, but um, in terms of practicality, it's just, well, they're just these figments of my imagination that have come to life and they're very real. I mean, I don't think of them as actually being real human beings to be absolutely clear. I realize my imagination talking, but at the same time, I can feel the tactile reality of them. And sometimes, because smell is one of my major identifiers for things, I can sometimes smell them, which is a really weird thing to say. But like like with Nick, I can sometimes smell like, if you know the weather in San Francisco, it's cold and damp, sort of, but not all the time. So people, particularly back in the day, would have been wearing wool. Which And then they would suddenly find themselves on a sunny afternoon that they weren't expecting, so they start sweating under the wool, which is a little bit damp because it was foggy early in the day, and that has a very particular aroma. Not something you would encounter much now because people don't wear wool like they used to, but it, it's one of those things where every now and then I get a little whiff of, like, oh, that's what Nick would have smelled like, like a little sweaty, a little, like, that weird, wool wet smell, and then, like, just the general aroma of what San Francisco smells like, which just has its own smell. So that's, every now and then that happens, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that would be, that's probably what it would smell like to be around him. Like, yeah. say, in, like, October of some year.
0: That's interesting. So, no, you you say it's, it's so it's a mysteries or crime fiction and stuff. Um, how do you set up the let's say, crime or mystery that's going to happen? Like, where, do, how do you develop that? Where does that come from?
1: They um, Almost always they stumble into them. Occasionally, because it, just to keep focused on Nick, um, Nick is a private detective. He becomes a private detective because he needs something to do. He's very wealthy, blah, blah, blah. That's part of the backstory. But he decides to figure out, you know, he meets somebody. I can't even remember the backstory on that. But it happens before we start. And um, he's so he's a private detective and he has the first book is how he sets up his private detective firm, including to bring in other people. And so they have clients. They begin to start clients begin to sort of trickle in because they're known to be in 1953 when such thing would not likely have ever been possible. They're known to be the gay private detectives. So they're the people who come as clients are like either really desperate or really offbeat because no mainline person is going to be seen around these people, not in 1953. Now that changes over time. But so like one um, in one book, it just, it's a, it's very straightforward kind of mystery format, particularly for mid century where Nick's sitting there, he has a client walks in and his father and his son is missing. And the father's um, uh, Czechoslovakian and, doesn't really speak English that well, but it's lived in San Francisco for like 20 years. And the kid is like an all American and he doesn't really understand his son very well. And so then they, you know, they begin to do the private detective things where they go to the house and they look through the son's bedroom and see what they can find. And they find these little clues and then one thing leads to another. Um, and that was a lot of fun to write. That was just a really straightforward detection, private detective detection novel, but others have been, they are some, sometimes they fall into stuff accidentally. Like they're building a building and somebody falls off the top floor in the middle of a construction while they're, while they're actually building the building. And then that they accidentally fall into what turns out to be this weird little mafia thing that's going on. And San Francisco didn't really have mafia. They had it somewhat, but it was very small compared to other places in the country. And so they are, fall into that and they have to deal with that. But basically, they're to be blunt, I don't really set up the stories. It's just Nick tells me what happened, and then I write it down, essentially. That's well, um, so what you
0: hear in voices.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, yes, to the extent that, yeah, except for the part where it's not an actual voice. It's more just like, you know, I just kind of can see it, and then I write it and describe it. And I don't get it all at one time. It, it's... Part of what I'm doing is I'm actually reading the book as I'm writing it, which is my favorite thing in the world and why I've tried to plot and I've plotted one book and it was the biggest mistake I've ever made. Um, But mostly in uh, to use the term that I really dislike, but it's a pretty common term is I'm called a pantser, which means I ride by the seat of my pants. Right. And, You know, Nick just tells me this is this is what happens. This is what's going on, and I just write it down. And you know, in these mysteries, in, the, in my particular books, there's a lot of development of the relationship between him and Carter that's happening simultaneous to everything else.
0: That's you know, it's it. So when you, you you seem to have uh, focused a lot on San Francisco, yet you don't live there. Um, where do you think that comes from? Like, why is it so important?
1: Well, I did live there. So I have lived there. Right. Um, But I also, I'm not writing about San Francisco in the, in its current state and San Francisco of all the cities in North America changes and becomes a different thing pretty quickly. It's one of those things that people live there and annoys them greatly. Um, But San Francisco is a very vibrant dynamic city and it's, you know, the difference between the San Francisco of like 1875 and the San Francisco of 1975 is not the same as it would be with other cities. It is a radically different city. And that's part of it is there's it's a very dynamic place and lots and lots of things happen there. And it's only forty nine square miles. It's very small, but a lot of stuff happens and there's a lot of really interesting stories underneath everything. Um, but also I just it's. My favorite city in the world, probably, um, without question.
0: Yeah. Well, it's got a lot of character. When you uh, talk about, you know, you have the love for old movies and all that, And do, do you make your um, detectives like an old type detective? Like, is it kind of like, because you say wisecracking and all that hard to go. Yeah. Are you kind of going after someone like uh, Richard Diamond, you know, the old Dick yes, Powell?
1: Never- Richard Diamond's probably, yeah, Richard Diamond of all the radio, Richard Diamond, right. is probably the the closest thing uh, to who Nick is of anybody. Um, not, But I will say, Nick, uh, Diamond is a little bit more, is a little bit darker, which is funny because he's on the radio, so it's not that dark but he's a little bit darker than Nick. Nick has, is a little bit more optimistic and a little bit more trusting of other people.
0: Wow.
1: He, you can't, you can't really get over him, but um, cause he doesn't have anything to lose. He's he doesn't, he doesn't need the job that he has. He's wealthy kind of beyond count. Um, so he can kind of go anywhere and do anything he wants to do. And he wants to help people. That's his number one thing. That's his motivation behind being a private detective and all the other things he gets into. Um, because he really, really, really has a very strong desire to be not a philanthropist. And he's very clear about this, not a philanthropist in the way that like Carnegie was, but a philanthropist that nobody knows about. That's his favorite thing, because it kind of that's how he started off being wealthy is that nobody really knew who he was. It, it was accidental. It fell into his lap and. He hid it for so many years that it just kind of became a habit that he didn't really want to broadcast, but people find out and they know who he is, but he doesn't really ever talk about, there's no Nick Williams Memorial, blah, 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 anywhere. Well, that's not true. There is one. In, in my fictional world, there is a, uh, I don't think it's named after it Nick. I can't remember what it's named, but there's a, there's a hospital in Hong Kong that's built. Using his money that um, has his name or Carter's name—I can't remember which one it is—and um, I actually had a couple of readers point that out. They were like, "Wait, he doesn't want his name on anything?" I was like, "Yeah, well, that was, that was part of the story—is his name has to be on it." So,
0: well, that's really—it's wow, well, it's quite quite a fascinating process here. Um, Do you ever think of making these on audio because uh, because someone like uh, Diamond is such a good radio presence?
1: Well, I actually have um, three audiobooks already up, so the books one, two, and three. Uh, I am dragging my feet to get the next two done. I have a narrator that I work with who I really like. Um, so they're on audiobook, but I'm going to go back to my narrator. He doesn't know this yet, if he hears this, he'll be surprised. <laughs> I'm really thinking about going outside of the realm of um, straight-up audiobooks and doing something a little bit more inventive. Uh, that would involve like a podcast of some sort. Um, because I, audiobooks, they're, for self-publishing at least, audiobooks are not, they're hard. They don't sell not the way that paperbacks are, not even, because I sell more paperbacks than I do audiobooks. Um, and they're not anything like what ebooks are like. Uh, but I do love, I mean, my narrator really has the voices down and he's got the, the rhythm and the cadence down really, really well. So I like working with him. But, yeah, no, what I'd really like is not only audio, but I'd love to see this filmed. I'd love, love, love to see it filmed. And I'm always kind of looking at different actors thinking, who would be who would be Nick and who would be Carter? Because just because it's fun to think about, but also it would be kind of fun to see, even though I know that I'd probably lose a little bit of control of the story, but it'd still be nice yeah. to see it even adapted, you
0: know. Yeah, yeah, it'd be good to see it up on the screen. But, yeah, you do lose... They do want to do it their way. So it's tough, you know, really tough. So now your your newest project that you got coming out, uh, the uh, biker who got bumped off. Um, Maybe give us a little bit of the premise there, the story.
1: Well, it's pretty simple. Um, It's Daytona Beach Book. It takes place during what we call here Bike Week, which is when bikers come to town. Uh, it was originally Bike Week had to do with a race, what was called the Daytona 200 and then the Daytona 250 that happened out on the beach. Uh, and in 1948, that was the first Bike Week that was really big. And that's, we still have Bike Week. In fact, we're going to have it here in a few weeks. Um, so Bike Week really started being big in 48. So this is centered around that. And there's two, the basic outline is pretty simple again. There are two rival kind of gangs and they're, but they're not called gangs because it's 48, not 55. Um, and they are, they're both in both cases. The one gang is from Seattle, one's from Milwaukee and they're both a bunch of gay men who worked, who were all knew each other basically during the war and are just traveling around making trouble or trying to live off the land kind of thing. Um, and one of them is accused of murdering another one. And there's lots of mistaken identity stuff that happens. Um, and essentially through legal stuff is how things get resolved. So this, again, it's a, it's a courtroom procedural that involves lots of little elements of the courtroom. And when I said earlier that there's one book that I plotted and it was a big mistake, it's this book. This book has taken me two years to write, which it, for me is, about 20 times longer than any book I've ever written. Um, And it's because I've been trying to get all the legal stuff right. There's no, how did Florida courts work in 1948? There's no such resource. I've had to pin it all together myself. And that's been a lot, a lot, a lot of research, diving deep into all sorts of things, including other crimes that happened at the same time. Uh, when I get this book done, I'm going to be very happy, and I don't drink, but i probably have an entire bottle of champagne um, because it's just been – this has been a long slog. But I love the story. I'm absolutely adoring the story and cannot wait to get it finished. But that's, that's the book I'm working on. Hopefully, by the time people hear this, it will be ready and done, but we'll see. But if it's not quite done, it will be almost done. So –
0: yeah. Now, so your books, you're centering a gay character throughout or gay characters. Um, do you also get into the details behind being gay and the different times, different cities oh, and
1: different situations? Yes. You do. Yes.
0: Is that real important?
1: Yeah, it's very important. In fact, in this particular book, um, the Kinsey Report came out uh, in January of 48. And this book takes place in March. So one of the characters has basically taken it on himself that we're not going to call ourselves inverts anymore because that was a very common Southern thing was to use the word invert to describe being gay. We're calling ourselves homosexuals. And there's actually, he kind of walks around and corrects other people uh, from time to time because there's basically all the characters who work in this law firm with the exception of one person, they're all gay. There's a lesbian and three gay guys and then one straight woman. Um, And it's, you know, they're very isolated in the sense that they don't really know that there's anyone else like them other than the people who kind of mess around because there's always straight guys who will mess around with anybody. And those kind of – those one of the characters in this book is the kind of person who would know that and would know them and probably knew them very well, in fact. Um, but, yeah, that's – it's a big part. And I, in the Nick Williams books, the um, progression of gay rights – is a really big part of the story because Nick essentially is a historical. There was nobody ever like Nick because the first person on the national level in the U.S. who was out was Harvey Milk, and that's 1976. So Nick is out, you know, 23 years before then and not voluntarily. He's outed. And there really was not anybody like that at all. There's certain people like everybody kind of knew about Oscar Wilde, but there would always be people who would say, well, no, Oscar Wilde wasn't really like that. Or um, there was a couple of English authors that everybody kind of knew, yeah, they're, they're probably gay, but maybe, but maybe not, and it doesn't really matter. There were people who were out to smaller groups of people, like Grace Kelly's uncle, was one of a character that I bring in. Uh, he was gay. He was uh, actually kind of openly gay. But he was, but nobody really knew that because there wasn't the mechanism by which to say this is, this is the case. But with Nick, because he's wealthy and because of who he tangles with, it becomes a national thing. So he's a historical. So he's standing there sort of as a counterpoint to what's actually happening in the culture because they don't change history. But he does encounter some of these historical people. Um, and the, most of them don't like him. And there's lots of that's which is a really complicated thing to explain, but most of them don't like him because he threatens the stability they're trying to establish for themselves. And which is another brings up lots of interesting plot points to say the least.
0: So, so you're are do you actually have kind of a underlying theme that you want people to get out of the story?
1: Well, um. Yeah. <laughs> yes and no. I mean, I, I have my own little axes that I grind through the stories, so there's no question. There's, um, they spent some time in Africa in the early 60s, and I write that because I really wanted to point out what white supremacy looks like in practice when it's actually being practiced. This is what it's like, and this is the effect that it has. Um, so there's a book that I've said that's set in the Belgian Congo right before it becomes independent and then a book that I've set in southern Rhodesia. And both of those stories allow me to, like, give my opinion about what that looks like. And researching the book on southern Rhodesia, by the way, was walking through an amazing swamp of white supremacy because most white supremacists now believe that Rhodesia is kind of the lost kingdom. That if only... It had not been turned over to the Africans that it would still be this wonderful, magical place where everything is done right in Africa, Um, which is really hard to read and hard to kind of dive into. But I think it's an important story to tell. So there's that. I think probably if there's one word I could use for all of this, it would be justice. And I don't mean vengeance. I mean actual justice because Nick, and this probably comes from me, um, Nick is very interested in justice. He's not interested in vengeance. Ever, and in fact, he's yet to actually kill anyone so far in any of the stories I've written. Other people kill people for him, not because he hires them, but because they're saving him or protecting him. But he's actually, although he can, he's a very good shoot. He, I mean, a very good shot. He, he's never actually killed anyone. Um, he's been accused of doing it, but it, he didn't do that. He was it wasn't him who did it. Um, so I guess justice is probably the biggest theme of all of it. And, again, not vengeance, but actual justice.
0: Hmm. It's interesting. Now, so does your environment affect the way you write? So, uh, now this is a, a question I ask a lot of writers. So the last year, you know, with, um, you know, the COVID and the Black Lives Matters, the riots, the dingbat orange guy, all of the stuff going on, um, and all the stress behind it. Um, does that seep into your writing? Like, I know it's error, and you're not going to write about COVID or anything like that. Oh, no.
1: Well, but I do have a contemporary series, that I did write uh, a book set. It not only, I, I have one novel set in March of last year, so right before, and it was set here right before St. Patrick's day, which that week was a really big week here for what happened with COVID. But also there, then they're also in early September in San Antonio, which is part of the plot. Um, and that was fascinating writing about that because I had to remember, I had to remind myself constantly, no one is smiling. You can't see anybody smile. You can't see their face because everybody's wearing masks, which was a own thing. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, the, what actually has invaded my mental space was not so much um, the pandemic uh, because I've been social distancing for several years. I didn't know that's what it was called, but that's what I've been doing. <laughs> um, but what's invaded my mental space was the, the historical aspect of what's been going on with the U.S. government and the impeachments. I'm very interested in, in that because I'm a historical buff. And so I've been a political buff, and I've watched, I've been spending way a lot of time watching the details of all that. So it kind of slowed down my writing. I haven't written as much in 2020 as I wanted to, and I, that I could have. Um, but it, 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 it didn't, there are times when it's like, okay, I just want to go back to 1948 or 1970 or whenever and write about that, because I just really don't want to look at 2020 right now. That's been helpful, um, and one of the things that I actually did to kind of speed that up for myself was I wrote. Um, it wasn't my plan because I started in January, but through, in 2020 I wrote 25 short stories that were Nick and Carter, and it was set in different times of their lives based on holidays. So there was like New Year's Day, and then Martin Luther King's birthday, Valentine's Day, etc., and um, those bump around in different time periods. And so that was nice because I'd get a little escape out of whatever was going on here and then I'd go back to some random time period like 1976 and writing about Independence Day in the U.S., which was obviously a really big really big event because it was 200 years. But, um, yeah, I, COVID has invaded my contemporary stuff. Um, but other than that, it, it hasn't really – it really hasn't affected me very much. In fact, I just realized today that – I only now know people who haven't. And the, these are the first people, and they're my neighbors, actually. These are the first people I actually have met or know of who haven't. And I've, I, nobody else in my close circle has had it. So it's been kind of at a distance for me personally.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, I was just wondering if, if, if when negative things are happening around you, um, even if it doesn't involve you directly, but, you know, you're watching the TV and you're watching – you know, about the impeachments and all the crazy stuff. Um, I I just wonder if you you maybe have a darker side that comes out in your
1: writing, maybe. Uh, No, I would say not, Um, because I do tend to look at things through the lens of, um, this isn't the right word, uh, but the lens of history, because we're just repeating stuff we've done already. Essentially, we're doing it differently, obviously, but you know we've been through a pandemic before. It's been a hundred years, but we did it before. We've been through pretty much all the stuff that's going on with the government in the U.S. At least right now, we've been through all this before, not to quite this extent and not quite this way, but it's just like you know, like well, yeah, things come and things go. And if nothing else, writing about history in the way that I've done, it has helped me kind of take a longer view on how things are happening and black lives, black lives matter. In my opinion is the one thing that I'll say we've never seen before ever. And I'm really grateful that it's happening and it's not just in all, you know, um, dealing with sexual predation, dealing with sexual harassment and assault dealing with racial, systemic racism and and racial profiling and all that stuff that we've talked about and talked about and talked about. But now, finally, something is happening. Something is shifting. I'm really grateful for that. And that's really, I would say, those things right there, that's one of the things that is unique. I don't think this has ever happened in any realm, in any contemporary or modern history that I'm aware of, where it's gotten this clear and this... Uh, precise in terms of looking directly at, okay, this is what is happening here and here and here and here and here. And obviously that has to do with technology. Before there was never a way to do that. If you found out about something, it would be two or three days later in the newspaper or maybe weeks later, depending on how remote it was and when the, when the time period was. Mm. And some things you wouldn't know about at all because they were covered up and it was much easier to cover something up when there were only a few hundred people who might know about it, not literally millions within 20 seconds, thanks to Twitter.
0: <laughs> good old Twitter. Um, <laughs> wow. So um, now, do you have um, a place you'd like people to come find you or stalk you? Do you have like a website that <laughs> it's good for yeah. you?
1: Yeah, I'm, I have a website. It's Frank W. com. Uh, you can see all my books there. You can figure out kind of who I am. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. Just Google my name and you'll find me. It's pretty easy. Um, yeah, so come and visit. I'm on Instagram, too. I just am now realizing I don't actually have links to either of those on my website. That's I can't, how very not 2021.
0: Yeah, you get on that.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, immediately, if not sooner. <laughs> um,
0: oh, grinder. Oh, LG. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, not no, not grinder. No, oh. no, but thank you. <laughs>
0: we have. Um, uh, we're going to have you posted up on our website as well, and we'll have your links up there and your books so people can find you with one click. So, so that makes it easy for them as well. Um, pretty amazing. Who? who so, um, who? Who do you think? Who do you like to read right now? Who are you reading besides yourself?
1: Uh, I'm terrible i'm reading myself. Mostly. Oh
0: okay. Well, um,
1: because either because i'm trying to stay in the time frame and in the in the mind frame of the time frame that i'm writing about so i reread the novels in my Daytona Beach series so that i'm real clear about what it, what has happened before or uh, because sometimes i just want to go back and read stuff that i don't remember writing which is happens frequently. Yeah. Um, but if i were i it, I'm just really terrible. I read the same stuff over and over and over again for whatever reason. Um, so it would be Dorothy Sayers or Armistead Maupin. He's uh, yeah. my... of the living authors. He's one of my favorites. Uh, and somebody that... One of the very few people that I would really, really, really like to meet in person. Wow, oh, that's interesting. Just, just, he's just an amazing... He really captured a time and a place in a way that's really unique that nobody else has really ever done, I don't think. Um, And that's Mm -hmm. about it. Yeah, I mean, what I like to do is I like to keep my focus on writing, and I try to limit my exposure to other writers and other, not only just through reading but also through television, so that I keep a
0: kind of a narrow focus. It helps me stay present with what I'm doing. Where do you see yourself going with this? Are you going to stay... Do you see yourself changing the the type of writing you're doing, and or you know, ten years from now, where do you think you'll be be at? Well, well ten years. I mean, considering I've only
1: been doing this five, ten is a really long time. But I would. It, I have some specific goals in terms of Nick and Carter. I have. I want to write about their life essentially as an epic. So we have to get from 1970 to 2008 somehow. And I have some ideas. There will be when we get to the eighties, I think that I will change some of the way I'm doing stuff. Um, mainly because I just cannot, and I'll make change my mind about this, but I cannot imagine writing about the eighties in San Francisco on and on and on, because it just seems like, well, we're just going to write about going from one funeral to another. Um, so I've had some ideas about how to, um, how to actually reflect more broadly what was going on in the culture. Um, at that time period, but we'll see. The 70s is going to be. The, the, I, the, the first short story I wrote last year was set in 79, and <laughs> um, let me just say there's a lot of cocaine involved. Uh, not the main characters. They, they don't they barely drink, and they certainly don't do anything else, but lots of people around them. Because of the 70s, you know, late 70s, with gay men, lots of coke, um, and lots of other recreational activities like that. Um, so some of it will have to do with that. Like the way I write about something will change a little bit because the characters are getting older and we're moving through the timeline and different things are happening. But in terms of like coming up with a new way of looking at things that may happen, I mean the Daytona beach books was that they kind of came out of nowhere and then I'm writing in a very different way. So now instead of being first character or first person narration, it's five characters with their POBs and, that's very different than the first-person stuff. So, hmm. But i, I got to get everybody through their lifetime, essentially. Um, <laughs> I know when both series, when both of those series will end. Um, so we just got to yeah. get to that point.
0: Just got to get there. Well, it's been a great conversation, and we appreciate you being on. Um, our guest has been Frank W. Butterfield. Thank you for being here.
1: It's really been my pleasure. Thank you for, so much for having me really, really a lot of fun. Thanks, Frank. Thank you. To find out more about our show, guests or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end. By George, he's got it. It is the end. I'll tell you. You're lying to me. Be back.
0: This has been a production of Something Way of Media.